Hey everyone, we at Renegade Animation on Renegade Pop Culture stand with the ongoing writers and actors strike that is still happening because the studios and the AMPTP will not pay them a fair living wage. If you would like to donate to the cause, please consider going to the entertainmentcommunityfund.org and making a donation to the film and television category. This is not a strike fund. This is a fund for the people who have been affected by the strike. With all that said, if you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. Also, consider supporting our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And boy, we got a fun episode for today. We have reviews for the final Paul Rudish Mickey Mouse short, Steamboat Silly. We've got Captain Fall, a new series from Netflix. And... The new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, Mutant Mayhem. So first, yeah, this one's kind of bittersweet to talk about. Steamboat Silly, the last of Paul Rudish's epic 10-year run of Mickey Mouse shorts. It's very bittersweet. I absolutely loved the chaotic energy that they brought back to the Mickey Mouse brand. And... The art style was fantastic. The actors that they brought on to bring these characters to life were pitch perfect. And the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse Steamboat Silly offers a very heartfelt farewell to this iteration of Mickey Mouse by basically playing a sort of best of Mickey Mouse in its tributes, its shenanigans, and references. Granted, a lot of the references come at the very end with all the different famous incarnations of Mickey Mouse himself. But if you wanted to see him go all out in that old black and white cartoon chaos, well, you definitely had it here when Mickey and the gang are rewatching old movies and the Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse escapes from the footage along with a hundred other clones of it, and starts causing chaos throughout their fair city. It's just a fun short. There's not a whole lot to talk about. It's basically nine minutes of unfiltered, cartoony chaos that we all love. That's basically it, but I'm not sure if, if this was like planned to be the final short, but as it is, it does kind of work as a nice swan song for... What honestly is like a really good 10-year run of shorts that not a lot of shows these days get 10 years to be on the air. And yet that's something that Paul Rudish has accomplished. And this short is just a lot of fun from all of like the tiniest references to just the overall premise of like the original Steamboat Willie version causing so much chaos around like this neck of the woods. It was funny because I was expecting there to be a lot more references just as a big closure for the show or this take of 
the iconic mouse, but it was very fun to see the Make Mine Music building show up because that was the name of one of those anthology films that they made back in the day when their animators and employees were going on strike back then. How fitting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) A really nice send-off. And I know everyone's just like, yeah, but it's owned by Disney. But it's like, you can still acknowledge the hardworking teams of creative individuals that work hard under nonsense-driven circumstances by these big studios to still craft and create something that is genuinely in love with the source material and the character. You can feel a lot of love with how these characters are portrayed. Even like the reference to the Turkey in the Straw musical sequence from Steamboat Willie was fun. Dumbo makes a little appearance. It was just kind of funny to to remember certain little details about this incarnation. Like, Donald is such the worst. <laughs> like, Mickey is out here being like, oh, we're going to watch some of my home movies. And Donald's just like, nope. <laughs> and like during the whole Mickey Mouse club theme, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Like, I, I guess that's part of the original theme, but that just seems like something he would do because he's such a self-important dirtbag at points, depending on the situation and incarnation of the character. That is totally in line with with his character throughout pretty much all of like the modern appearances of Donald he's he's very self-centered and I know some people can roll their eyes at the whole like the more Mickey Mouse in the world makes the world a better place ending line and it's like I know it's Disney right now with them still trying to keep up the facade of we're a family-friendly company they're not but the writers were being genuine though Don't knock the writers for making that line happen, you know? (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. Not much else to talk about with it. It's going to be interesting to see what the next thing they do with Mickey Mouse is. Because it's going to be hard to top this one. I don't know what you could possibly do to reinvent the character after this series. Maybe they'll finally do that Kingdom Hearts pilot thing. I mean, like, I joke, but you know, somewhere, some executive, it's like rocking back and forward in his chair at every meeting, being like, green light the Kingdom Hearts TV series. For the love of God, green light it. We've been waiting like 20 plus years for it. <laughs> Actually, it is probably like 20 years now. since the original Kingdom Hearts. Anyway, we'll just have to see what happens with everyone's favorite mouse. Unless your favorite mouse is Ratatouille, but, you know. So next, we will be talking about a surprise adult animated comedy, or more of a adult, dry, dark comedy with some mystery elements TV series that has been released on Netflix called Captain Fall. It's created by Jean-Iver Helgaka, Jonas Torgensen, and Joel Trussell. If the first two sound familiar, if you're a fan of Netflix's shows or 
because of Netflix's lackluster marketing. Are familiar with the Norsemen live action series? This is by the same creators. And it was going to be a live action show, but then Netflix suggested that they turn it into a animated series. And once again, something about this year, maybe it's just because of the slow start and rolling out of TV shows and movies, we have another adult animated series that differs from what we normally get. I mean, it still has all of those moments and tropes that you find in a lot of adult animated series, but it's, once again, something that stands out from the pact. I don't think I like it as much as, say, Fired on Mars, but it's a nice, genuine surprise to see adult animation once again take another step in, hey, we don't have to do the South Park Family Guy thing. Fired on Mars is pretty much a great point of comparison when it comes to, I guess, like the kind of vibe that this show is going for, where it's like, yeah, it's still an adult comedy in terms of like the ultra violence and the other kind of standard tropes, but it really does try to go beyond that in terms of its very off kilter sense of humor, very dry characters, definitely something that it's not trying to be just another South Park or Family Guy clone. It has like its own identity. So this show is about a wet behind the ears yet good-hearted sea captain who is unwittingly put into the control of a ship that just happens to be a smuggling ship with a bunch of, let's just say, dangerous black market connections. In case anything happens, Captain Fall, who is voiced by Jason Ritter of, y'all would know him as Dipper from Gravity Falls, as, well, the Fall guy. So Captain Fall has, like, <laughs> multiple meanings. It's not just the guy's name. It's also, he's the Fall guy. Yeah, I think what makes this show stand out is the dry sense of humor. It's a very quiet show. There's music, not to say there isn't any, but all the dialogue is delivered through... Very dry, monotone delivery. You have to really pay attention to some of the jokes. And it's supposed to have this pseudo-awkward atmosphere that envelops the entire first ten episodes. It's definitely violent. It's definitely crass. There's puke, violence, edgy dialogue at times. But there's a lot going on with the ship itself. I would say, even though Jonathan Fall, the main character, is the most morally good person on the ship, they definitely play up the fact that he's not very bright, very ah, ignorant, and easy to manipulate. But he is a honestly nice person he just wants to make sure everyone on the ship is good even though everyone on the ship are like grade a terrorist you can kind of tell that this is a character who is 
definitely suffering from some sort of arrested development in that this might be one of the darkest sort of details of of his backstory that just because he was born like what did they say like a week or two before his due date his parents didn't want to get attached so that's why he's missed like all of the family vacations why he is pretty much forced to live in his treehouse and why he just generally seems aloof gullible just unaware of the world around him yeah just completely sheltered he's a lot better than his family because good lord chalk up another family for worst tv family in history his parents suck i don't think i've seen a more polar opposite family compared to something like the family you see in like my dad the bounty hunter here the parents just do not care about our main character they just can't muster any kind of excitement or love for him they will come up with whatever excuse they can to be like to do the bare minimum that shouldn't even be the bare minimum it's just common human kindness like the fact that jonathan's mom barely even knows how to hug him is just kind of proof positive that they're the worst and then there's tanner jonathan's brother voiced by adam devine and probably the most punchable performance out of the bunch this guy is a dirtbag like grade a born from misogyny dirtbag And, like, the only thing that keeps him from being, like, the most unwatchable cartoon character is that he suffers the consequences of his action and does get put in his place by one of the other characters in episode 9. Like, the way that this show builds its characters and its stories around the antics of Jonathan Fall piloting this ship is interesting because there will be episodes where large spans of the runtime are spent building up crime of the week and sometimes they just won't even show jonathan fall at all within the show he may show up in like one scene but the rest of the episode he might as well just not be a character at all it's interesting because they spend a lot of time doing stuff like building up like the couple who want to get into swinger culture and how that episode basically shows how doing stuff like swingers takes a lot of commitment and cooperation between the two parties. And one of them was basically wanting to use that as an out to cheat. And it leads into the whole sex drug thing that this ship that Jonathan Fall captains is manufacturing to give out to different people. They do a lot of things. There's a really dark take on the human zoo. Yeah. Aspect where this one guy asks the ship that fall pilots to find different people from around the world so this one guy can buy them to put them in a cage at a zoo. And it's like a different play on the whole, like, hunting humans as a sport kind of thing and i do think two of the creators show up in a little cameo the european guys who are stuck in that cage in that zoo 
like going up on a uh, snowy mountain with skis. And then they pull up the whole uh, albino witchcraft stuff, which, golly, I thought that was like, is that like a trope that we all came up with? Just like a horrifying racist origin and such? Apparently that's an actual thing. And Lordy, you just kind of find new ways why the world sucks. But what's also interesting as Jonathan is unaware of all the horrors that are happening, there's a police chief named Agent Steele, voiced by Christopher Maloney, who wants to bust the ship and undo everything. It has like this nice subplot of showing the incompetence in police and the corruption and such. Because like the captain, who's voiced by Cedric Yarborough, is, okay, we did the bare minimum, this is it, that's mission complete. And even though Agent Steele knows that there's absolutely more at hand, it was interesting to see how his plot unraveled, to see if he could actually put a stop to these folks. I just think the way that this show tells its story is probably the best aspect of the show. Nothing they do is really conventional in the way that you might expect on something a bit more mainstream for example agent steel we don't really see him in every episode but the episodes that he is in where he gets a little bit more of the focus are actually really good i would have liked to see him like sprinkle in a little more just so that we're like able to follow his investigation just as much as we're like establishing the crews and jonathan's role in all of this but i don't know as it is I can't say that I was bored by any aspects of the show. Like we've said, it's comedy is not zany and absurd. There are definitely absurd moments, but the comedy definitely comes from the conversations and the interactions all the characters have with one another. And Jonathan Fall being completely unaware of all the horrors that are entailed. But it's interesting to see how some of the other characters, like Pedro and Lisa, who are voiced by Alejandro Ada and Leslie Ann Brandt, like, they're bad people, but you can tell that they're lying to themselves about some of the things that they say, like, when the singles cruise happens, and I think that's in, like, the last episode of these first ten episodes, where they, the singles cruise is actually a means of an end to find brides for men of power and seeing Lisa be like who knows maybe she'll be happy when you know that's not going to be the case they have to constantly lie and basically do whatever to do whatever they will to not think about the horrors that they do every single day it's got to be pretty daunting to always convince yourself that you're doing i'm sure they know that they're doing very illegal things but they still have to play it off like this is just their job and it's something that they know they have to do even though it's very illegal it's interesting to see them bounce back and forward between really feeling bad that they're duping jonathan fall or getting screwed over because of Jonathan Falls' earnest actions. Like, he really likes Lisa, but Lisa is keeping him at, like, a six-foot distance of separation. Though there are times where she is like, maybe I do like him, 
and is actually very supportive of Jonathan Falls history and like what he had to deal with with his family and how that cold exterior that she puts up comes down when he realizes like okay I am doing a ton of questionable morally unethical illegal things but at least I'm not Jonathan Falls parents (laughs) or his brother and they do warm up to him as time goes on because he's not just another scapegoat for them. They start liking his optimism and kindness because they don't give it out so frequently and such. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help that they have to deal with individuals like Mr. Tyrant, who is their benefactor and boss voiced by Barry's Anthony Kerrigan. I love how on the nose that name is. And yet nobody calls it out like in the show. They rather call out other aspects, like how when they all, when like Lisa, Pedro, I think Nico, and uh, this one other guy were brought to Mr. Tyrant's place, they push that one random guy into the shark pool, and the sharks don't even really care about it. They're like, oh, okay, this isn't our usual food, like source, whatever. And they just kind of dryly go through long pauses of just like well do something splash around or something <laughs> or when jonathan fall gets a zoom call with mr tyrant and mr tyrant's just like okay can he hear me no okay just okay when he can okay the button is glowing does that mean he can hear me all right this should have been working before we set up the zoom call <laughs> <laughs> Like, it is a very funny show. It's just very distinct with its comedy. And there's another great dark joke I like from the police commissioner being, like, sending selfies and making social media posts about going on a raid, hashtag police, and it's just like, you would be fired or at the very least sued for basically doing stuff like that because the other police people are like, yeah, man, we got to get in touch with the social media generation. (laughs) That's how we stay hip with the youths instead of just like not being the worst. This show is so distinct for itself. And this is what happens when you pay writers and creatives what they're worth to come up with something like this. Animation wise, like I was trying my hardest to find out who was the studio behind the animation here because it's not bento box and it wasn't titmouse even though i was going to be not shocked by it since titmouse seems to do more visually distinct animated series compared to what bento box is usually putting out but you know again production pipelines are a result of how the show will look But instead, it's Boulder Media, a studio that is mostly known for the Netflix iteration of the My Little Pony franchise. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and I think the show looks good for what it is. Like, they definitely have, like, a distinct visual look to this one show. It doesn't look like... You wouldn't say this looks like the Brickleberry people or something like the Bob's Burgers. 
visual look. It's it's a very cool look for everyone. Yeah, sure, you can see some of the TV visual quality details, like with how characters move and such. But I give them kudos for being able to have a distinct look to them. Yeah. If I was going to compare this to anything, it does have a little bit of Venture Brothers-ish style, and both are kind of inspired by the old Hanna-Barbera shorts. I could see that. It kind of reminds me of Venture Brothers in a few ways, especially with the two henchmen, one of them played by Flulaborg, and they banter off of one another through very charming dialogue and such. I even like the obviously terrible people that they are dealing with. Like I love the little twists on the joke of the gorilla rebel captain, all the baggage that comes with that portrayal. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, listen, we're going to this big meeting with our clients because we don't want to come off as the typical stereotype. And it's just like, oh boy, where's this joke going? People who don't know how to use PowerPoint. And it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was not what I was expecting at all. (laughs) Because sometimes with these shows, like with adult animation, there's always that hint of like, oh, they're trying to be more clever than they are, but then they just come off as shocking and offensive. You don't really get that here. Or... It doesn't come off as mean-spirited towards a certain group of people and such. If anything, they kind of subvert that expectation by, instead of going for the edgier joke, they'll go for something more mundane. Like a war general who wants to come off as more tech-savvy than he really is. I don't think there's one that I would argue that was like, oh, that was a miss. There are definitely some punchlines. I was just kind of like, oh, ha, 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 whatever. But it's a show with a lot more depth than I was really ready and expecting it for. And, you know, that could just be because of marketing and just how most adult animated series have to play up the jokes or the antics and the violence and what have you. It does a lot of things well. And... It's just a really solid show. I hope there's another part. I assume that there's a part two coming within a few months. Yeah, especially with how episode 10 ends. It's have to assume that this was at the very least a 20 episode order that they split in half because otherwise that is one hell of a cliffhanger to end on. I mean, like there are definitely some shows that were expecting to get renewed like the prince which ends on the royal family getting poisoned or hoops that ended with our main character in a worse spot than before but instead i assume that they did a 20 or more episode order and netflix is gonna underpay them by cutting it up into multiple parts and saying hey we ordered one season, but that one season happens to have 30 episodes. So we'll just have to see. But otherwise, if you're looking for something different with your 
adult animation in a year where adult animation has been vibrant, mostly because Warner Brothers Discovery is labeling a lot of shows that they're bringing to their Cartoon Network channel and their streaming service as adult when you know it's not very adult, but whatever. (laughs) Then give Captain Fall a watch. I know whatever you think about the marketing, give Captain Fall at least three episodes. I think you'll get a kick out of it. By episode three, you should know where you stand with the series. It is definitely a recommendation from both of us. But now we must talk about the big animated film of August. Well, one of them, the first one. We'll be talking about Monkey King probably in the next episode. But let's talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. The new film directed by Jeff Rowe of the Mitchells vs. Machines duo, written and produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and that crew, where we set the timeline of this incarnation with the four turtles as teenagers. Heavens forbid you actually make them teenagers. (laughs) Anyway, basically what happens is They try to not get involved with the humans. They get involved with one, April O'Neil. And then to find out a way so they aren't shamed and shunned by society, they decide to take down a supervillain who is causing a lot of chaos named Superfly. And his group of super mutants. Can our four leads take them down while also becoming accepted by humans. So there was a lot of hype for this one. Like I think since its teaser was released, maybe at the beginning of this year or so. At least a couple months ago. When we got like confirmation that Seth Rogen and everyone in the creative seats were talking about you know what we haven't done before? Have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles actually be teenagers. Why the hell did it take so long for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to not only be actual breathing teenagers and be voiced by actual teenagers? Honestly, that's a great question. After like what, 40 years of comics, TV shows, movies. It's weird how this is like the first time where someone decided, you know what, let's actually focus on the teenage part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And yeah, I think honestly the best part of this movie is the fact that they got four incredibly talented teenagers to voice these characters. Let's do kind of like what we did with our Rise of the TMNT episode and kind of break down the different aspects of this incarnation. Our first, like we've said, aspect of what makes this one stand out is the teenage aspect in front of and behind the film. We have Leonardo, who's voiced by Nicholas Cantu, who 
many would know as Gumball from The Amazing World of Gumball, and as Charlie from Skull Island. Yep. Then we have Donatello, who's voiced by Micah Abbey, who for Raphael, we have Brady Noon, who voices Greg Heffley from the Diary of a Wimpy Kid CGI films that we've watched. And then with Michelangelo, we have uh, Shaman Brown Jr. And I think they do very well play up the teenage aspect of it. They're very dorky, very awkward. I don't want to use cringe because it's just like, y'all, we have all acted like these teenage mutant ninja turtles at one point or another with how we pal around with friends or close family members or like siblings and such. Yep. Every group of teenagers, college students, brothers and sisters, like they all have that. I don't even know if there's a word for like their dynamic. It's, it's just that it's a dynamic that's unique to them. And I think the fact that they act put these four in the same booth recording dialogue together helps with their chemistry, makes it feel more organic and just kind of falls in line with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's usual brand of comedy. Exactly. That is definitely the thing that makes it stand out the most. And they do make sure that every turtle is distinct. Like Leonardo is like the more well-rounded looking turtle. Raphael has a little more bulk to him and his mask is more of a do-rag. Donatello has glasses and a few little nerdy aspects like anime stickers and an interest in pop culture. And Michelangelo looks the most childish or like the youngest looking of the bunch. I'm a little disappointed that they didn't go the Rise of the TMNT route by making them all different turtles. Like different types of turtles. That's why Rise will always kind of be my favorite because they do the most to make the four of them distinct, not just in their color, but like you said, they're all different types of turtles. This one, they still look and sound different enough, but it's not quite as distinct as as Rise. I know that was such a great creative detail that I wish they would continue on with these other takes on the turtles for Raph's mask the do-rag thing that something that did carry over from rise and i do appreciate that yeah yeah for splinter we have jackie chan voicing the rat dad and i think he does a pretty good job of it but i think jackie chan despite his real life issues and situations with his family It's interesting to see him get paired up in stories about dealing with a dysfunctional family situation. But he does bring, like, that dad energy that comes with this character, like with this version of Splinter. He's not really a martial arts sensei here. He basically taught all the turtles by looking up YouTube videos, watching martial arts self-defense tapes, and watching kung fu movies. (laughs) which I think that's a great little detail. Like, he's wise, but they play up the father aspect of this one more than Mm -hmm. the other incarnations of the sensei. Kind of funny is, I think some of those movies in that montage are Jackie Chan films. 
I think one of them is. The other ones I remember I saw were, I think, Shaw Brothers Studios produced films. I've been watching a lot of kung fu movies. I'm starting to differentiate them. (laughs) And here we have April in this incarnation, who is also a teenager, voiced by Ayo Edebiri, who I think does a fantastic job. She is on fire this year. Like, oh my goodness. Seriously. (laughs) Like, she has been in so many good shows and movies. Like, she's really cool. And I like this take on April being a teenager because it's always been like a young adult or an adult character teamed up with these teenage, well, turtles. And while I'm not super fond of the whole one of the turtles crushes on April trope, they nip it in the bud because it, as much as like I have issues with certain parts of the pop culture references in the dialogue, these turtles have been sheltered. All they know is basically pop culture. They have no real human interaction or social skills. I'll give it a little slide that Leonardo is like, well, like they say in the movie, I think all his hormones kicked in at once. (laughs) Like when they go chase after the guy who stole April O'Neil's moped. I love that moment of just like his awkward stiff arms up in the air and just like running off to the side. And then they're just like, I think all his hormones and puberty kicked in at once. (laughs) Everything about that scene is just delightful. Like, I like like that she's becoming an aspiring reporter and what have you. And I love her design. Like, I'm sorry, weirdos on the internet who want her to be constantly hot. Even when she's a teenager, which makes a lot of y'all acting like freaking creeps. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, I think this is a cool design. She's got a lot of personality to her. And again, I like that they're all teenagers. They're all the same age. And I like her interactions with the brothers. And they do nip the romantic interest thing in the bud at the very end in a post credit sequence, I think. Mid-credits, but sure. Yeah, I mean, the mid credit sequence where she's like, you know, we're just here at the prom as friends, right? Oh, yeah. But let's talk about the next big change here. Baxter Stockman and the mutants. Essentially, Baxter Stockman is the originator of the ooze that has created Splinter, the Turtles, and the, what, like eight or so different mutants that we encounter? Like, on top of Superfly? So he's the, like, the creator of them, and dies very early on in the movie, like literally in the first 10 minutes or so. Which makes this probably the smallest role that Giancarlo Esposito has had in, you know, the past 10 or so years. It's interesting that they decide to kill off Baxter Stockman as a character here, because I was wondering what they were going to do, since usually Baxter Stockman turns into a fly, but Superfly, voiced by Ice Cube, is a wholly original character in this iteration of the franchise. I think he's the only original mutant out of the bunch, since the others have been in other incarnations of the Turtles franchise. Because we have Bebop and Rocksteady, which you gotta have. Of course. Voiced by Seth Rogen and John Cena. 
You have Mondo Gecko, voiced by Paul Rudd. Leatherhead, voiced by Rose Byrne. Genghis Frog, voiced by Hannibal Beerus. Ray Filet, voiced by Post Malone. Wingnut, voiced by Natasha Dimitriou. And Scumbug. But the thing that's interesting about this is they just front-loaded all the mutants that you would want to see in one movie to the audience. And I think that's a great idea, but it makes me wonder what exactly they are going to do. Because we know who's going to show up in the second movie. And they basically set it up in that mid credit sequence. But are these mutants, are this, these versions of the mutants going to stay good guys, or are they going to be bad guys? That is a good question. And I'd say right now, I'm okay with this change only because there's more you can do in this world with characters that we haven't met yet. Like, we haven't really seen the Utram yet, despite one of these characters having the the very subtle name of Cynthia Utram. Yeah, we haven't seen the aliens aspect of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yet, even though I think we're all kind of assuming that Cynthia is one of those little aliens from, like, the Krang and such. And she's played with a more subdued performance by Maya Rudolph. I mean, like, she still gets a lot of great dialogue, but her performance is, she's a more sinister villain of the bunch. Mm -hmm. And I do like the concept of Superfly raising all these other mutants. And I love all the designs. I think they did a great job. I mean, you can't mess up Bebop and Rocksteady. Or like Mondo Gecko and Leatherhead has more of like a British, Australian vibe to them. Genghis Frog. <laughs> I love that they're kind of confused. Like, why are you called Genghis Frog? And you don't really get a proper answer. And Ray Filet, played by, like I said, Post Malone, who just wants to be singing. And Wingnut has robotic limbs, which I think is a good touch since, well, bat wings are basically the wings and the arms. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it plays into the whole, like, there's supposed to be a parallel between Superfly and how he raised the mutants and how Splinter raised the turtles. And I like that because I was curious with how they were handling the villains or the supposed villains with Superfly being the major big bad guy next to Cynthia. Well, what's interesting is that they introduced the mutants that we all see in the trailers and marketing essentially in the last 40 minutes, which yeah. I think this movie could have been longer. Like, make it two hours or so, because as much as I do like the pacing, because it's very smooth. I never felt like these were the moments they had to stall so they could fill up a runtime. But I wanted to see either the mutants introduced earlier or, like I said, have a longer running time so it's not just the last act of the movie is when everything unfolds. I will concede that this could have been fleshed out to a full two hours, though I've seen the movie three times now, and at no point did I, did I have like any major issues with the pacing. It's more just like, I wanted more. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted to see more interactions because some of the mutants don't do a whole lot. The ones who mostly get the screen time are Mondo Gecko 
and Bebop and Rocksteady. I mean, like, outside of Superfly, of course, but still. Like, Ray Filet, Genghis Frog, Leatherhead, and Wingnut, while they do stuff in the movie, they don't have a lot of dialogue or moments to truly shine. And that's a shame because I like some of the casting here, but it kind of reinforces the issues of why people do not like celebrity casting. These people are getting paid like so much money for five lines of dialogue. I would have personally preferred them to keep it to Superfly, Mondo, Bebop, and Rocksteady. And not just because I love Bebop and Rocksteady's dynamic with John Cena and Seth Rogen. John Cena's second... foray into the turtles universe by the way so oh yeah that's right and i loved that moment of like superfly being like since i was the oldest i had to raise everyone and rock said he's like he was a good parent and bebop is like yeah we are very realized individuals (laughs) like like we are fine we don't have problems (laughs) (laughs) which shows a sign of insecurity but Mondo Gecko stole the show for me out of all the mutants because it's hard to hate Paul Rudd. It's like almost impossible. And I just love his design. I love how he just wants to vibe, man. I like, I wonder if they kept everyone in the same recording room, just like the teenagers and such. Because if you're going to have someone interact with teenagers who can vibe on their level, it's Paul Rudd. Like, Paul Rudd has done something to make him, like, the most appealing individual on the planet. I mean, like, yes, you know where this film is going. I know a lot of people are comparing this to Across the Spider-Verse because these are the two super stylized comic book adaptations. I'll say this. I think Across the Spider-Verse is a better movie in terms of writing, themes, and, and just, like, a story overall. But I think Mutant Mayhem has a more cohesive story, but it's hard to compare the two because Across the Spider-Verse decided to two-part its movie. Yeah, and the other difference is we're comparing the middle chapter of, like, Trilogy to the first installment of who knows how long this version of the Turtles is going to last. And the other difference is Mutant Man has a more consistent animation style. And also, I will agree that Across the Spider-Verse is the better film. I think I had just a little bit more fun watching this movie. I can see that. This film has a more playful energy to it that makes it more rewatchable. I saw this movie twice. And it's not like it isn't setting stuff up. Like, we're going to see the Shredder in the next movie. And they've obviously made Cynthia the overarching villain of this incarnation. And I just love the animation here. The ugly, grungy comic book style that they went with makes it stand out compared to Spider-Verse. Like like we've said in the past, we got to find a better alternative than just saying the Spider-Verse style. Even just saying stylized animation, it barely like describes the individualism of each of these movies and shows. 
for some reason, people have been up in arms about the human designs for this film. And it's like, that's the point that like a lot of the humans are ugly and grungy looking. I mean, it makes for a more visually distinct and interesting movie. And it's not like there are worse examples of designs that were put on paper and then translated CGI that did not turn out well at all. Trust me, when you see enough CGI animation from overseas, there are just some moments where there there should have been like, let's redesign this person before we take the time to build the rig and the CGI model and such. Mm-hmm. The ugliness here is intentional, and it can also work on a story basis of like, the humans are a complicated, ugly species because of how they treat people who are different from them. Like, I know they the turtles have that whole thing that they make fun of, of like why Splinter doesn't want them to interact with humans because they will objectively kill them or in the shockingly funny ongoing joke, milk them. (laughs) I was so ready to be tired of that joke because I was like, ah, God, what is with this ongoing joke about Splinter's fear of the turtles getting milked and that they build upon that joke and it lands so well when when Splinter comes in to save the turtles. And he's like, what is that machine? Does that say milking on it? And it says, like, the Hyper Milker 9000 or something like that. <laughs> or, like, when Michelangelo's getting milked. And they're like, just think about something else. Like, think through the pain. Like, pizza. It's like, I can't. Cheese is made of milk. And I'm getting milked. It's invading every fiber of my mind. <laughs> I loved seeing Splinter in this movie. Well, one of the things that they said was when they got to casting, they then designed the characters around said casting. And Splinter's little rescue sequence feels a lot like old school Jackie Chan. A lot more improv on the spot fighting that his movies are mostly known for. That's the other thing I I like about the action in this movie. It feels more very loose, very off the cuff, because they're obviously new at this. With the exception of that scene with Splinter getting to show off what he's made of, the scene when, when they're taking down the guys who stole April's scooter, that scene was just so much fun because they had no idea what they're doing. But once they kind of found their groove, they were able to take everyone else down. Murder the tracks. <laughs> like I said, I love the dialogue in this movie that flavors the action sequences. Like Raphael has an obvious anger issue. <laughs> I dream of fighting every night. You have a rage problem, Raph. It's not a problem. They do differentiate the turtles' fighting styles throughout the animation. And thankfully, Jeff Rowe and the team were aware of probably because of the stuff going down with Sony Pictures Animation and the bad working conditions that they're still not really answering properly for or changing their methods of how they produce animated films. Jeff Rowe confirmed that they did not overwork their animators here. Granted, there's definitely some things you have to pay attention to, especially with how studios that animate stuff for the U.S. that are from like Vancouver... And, like, France, there are definitely things you have to keep in mind when talking about this topic. But it is nice to see that, yes, 
it is possible to do this cool stylized look and not overwork and burn out your animators. Once again, it's all in the management. It's literally how good the manager manages the production pipeline. Exactly. It's like this for every piece of media and entertainment industry stuff. Video games, movies, it's all there. And like I love the big climactic fight sequence with Superfly when he becomes like super mutant. Like Superfly with all the different animals on him and such. Like he's like, yo man, I got a whale tail and body. I got a lobster claw. I have a giraffe for a head. And this one leg is made of horses. And the scale of what they were able to pull off with the fight sequences, like with all the other mutants throughout the movie. And once again, Jeffro and Seth Rogen want you to know that the hallway fight sequence from Old Boy is perfection incarnate. Oh, yeah, definitely. The action is just really good, especially when they're trying to hunt down whatever crooks are connected to Superfly. The whole sequence is inspired by the old boy hallway fight sequence. And yet every part of it feels refreshing and distinct. It's just a cool sequence. And just all the little grungy comic 2D details that happen all over the place. Ah, it's just such a cool movie. The reason I said on Letterboxd that this is one of the best movies set in New York City is that it feels like something that's like, born and raised in the Big Apple. The grungy style of animation. It's got a very sketchbook aesthetic. And also, there are a lot of references to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies in the climax once April does her news report saying like, no, 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 the turtles are the good guys. They're the heroes. And before that, when the headline said like, mutant mayhem, I did one of those Leonardo pointing meme things. That's the title. (laughs) And it ends on a very good note. I like where they are taking this story, where they basically, the turtles are out in the open. Mutants are out in the open. And they go to school, which I'm wondering if that was part of the story, like for them to be able to live among the humans, or if that was something requested by Nickelodeon. Because... The youngins gotta see our characters in high school, yo. We gotta feel hip while making terrible business decisions. Like over-speaking about not making original animated films anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still not happy about Brian Robinson's comments. But the head of Paramount Animation did say like, Hey, hey, whoa, wait a minute here. We are still making original movies. So, but what do you expect from the guy who wrote Norbit? Exactly. Going back a minute, I love parallel between April and the Turtles in sort of their motivation behind taking down Superfly. They both start off doing things for, to put it in April's words, the wrong reason. April wants to fix her reputation. She no longer wants to be called Puke Girl. And the Turtles, understandably, just want to be accepted. And they think by doing this, they'll be accepted when... Like, it's not just easy as one, two, three. Let's just say that. Well, I will say this is probably a film that feels a little more family-friendly compared to Across the Spider-Verse, which is, like, pushing the edge of, like, what you can do with family audiences. 
I do think Mutant Mayhem still feels like anyone and everyone should watch it. I think some of the pop culture references get a little distracting with how they're implemented. Not like it's terrible. Like we said, I give the excuse of these are sheltered characters who basically intake pop culture as their only means of escapism from the world that they live in. But there were still moments where I felt like them referencing real people or Splinter takes out the celebrity standees and such. That actually got a a pretty big laugh out of my audience. Oh, it was super funny. It's just there were moments, like I said, there were just moments where the pop culture felt distracting to me, just in how it was executed. But I did love the like, look at me, I'm Chris. Look at my eyebrows. I'm the best Chris. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, granted, Chris Pine is the best Chris because he was also in that great Dungeons and Dragons movie from this year. Yes. Also from Paramount. Anyway. But I do like how it ends with them being more accepted into society because we don't see a lot of incarnations of the Turtles where they are accepted by society. Most of the time it says they have to work in the shadows, like how ninjas should. But here it's like, hey, it's out in the open. So what? (laughs) i'm a touch disappointed that this is the only incarnation that doesn't have the turtles disguising themselves in a hat and trench coat that is funny i wish they kept that trope for like a moment or something there are just so many fun little details in this movie that you could blink or be unaware of them and miss them like i think it was the phone call the ringtone for one of the turtles is like from the NES game. That's and a good pull. I know. I want to pick up that TMNT collection that's like on all the modern consoles and such because it's like watching this movie and watching the pre-show ads from different periods of time of the TMNT franchise. It was like, TMNT has some great video games. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't have too many complaints. Like I said, I think they could have either made the movie longer or had less mutants. It's hard to know where they're going with the story and if all of these mutants are going to stay good. But otherwise, the movie sets out to be like one of the best incarnations of the franchise. If we're including non-theatrical movies, like the Turtles Forever special or Rise of the TMNT, the movie... I would still put Mutant Mayhem at number one, but this is a franchise that has lasted for about 40 years, and except for the next mutation, there hasn't really been that many, like, genuine stinkers. The next mutation, and then just all of the merchandising things, like the whole musical tours where the turtles... Out of their shells? Yeah, Like, you don't last this long without having a few disastrous things and a few bad movies under your belt. I forgot how weird the 90s got with all those, like, direct-to-VHS sort of weird tie-ins. Oh, yeah. No, it's milk the cow dry, as they say. One other thing I would be remiss if I didn't mention was the soundtrack is awesome. If you're a fan of 90s hip-hop, this has pretty much all the classics on there. A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, just great soundtrack. But the composers 
also put in a real killer orchestrated soundtrack as well. It's amazing to say this, that this is only the second animated feature that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done music for. The first was Disney and Pixar's Soul back in 2020. I hope they keep going with this because they really know how to write music that just fits the story like a glove. Exactly. This was a fantastic movie, easily in my top 10 animated films of the year. And obviously it's making a ton of money right now, so you don't really need us to say go see it, but do go see it. I want to see more distinct takes on IP and franchise stuff. Because if Hollywood's going to triple and double down on it, like how they're learning the wrong lessons from this film's success and Barbie's success... God, reading that list was just sad. (laughs) What kind of movies Mattel and Hasbro have in production. If we're going to get bombarded with those kind of movies, then I want to see creatives get full control to do what they want to do with them. And we're getting a sequel and a TV series based off of this incarnation of the Turtles. So obviously things are going pretty well with this one. Oh yeah, building off what you said a, a second ago, I would like to see all of these like you know big IPs essentially acting as a Trojan horse for very creative stories that happen to be set in the sandboxes of whether it's like Mattel, Marvel, DC, whatever. Obviously, I would rather original ideas. But if you're going to double down on IP, at least give us a reason to see these movies or watch these shows. Exactly. I agree. I would rather we get more original stuff. And we do. It's happening all the time. You just have to sadly look out for them. But if we are going to get brand merchandise IP-driven movies then you have to let the creatives cook. Don't just get a director just because they'll do whatever you say. Get someone with a vision, a image of what they can do. And this is what they can do when you let them make what they want to make. Exactly. But for now, that's it for this episode. We will be back maybe a bit from now when we will talk about the Monkey King. And I think that Mech Pilot show is coming out this month as well. Ooh. But otherwise, a lot of the focus is going to be on covering the summer 2023 anime season. Hmm. Which we're going to do as one episode. Until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on X, Twitter, and on Blue Sky now at Cam's Eye View, I have my own website called Cam'sEyeView.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Cam'sEyeView. That's where you can find me. And you can find me across various social media at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and the artist formerly known as Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube on Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegade pop culture. 
Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.